the Wildlife Observer Network. All right, hello and welcome to the first episode of Herpin' Ain't Easy, part of the Wildlife Observation Network. I am your stand-in host, Tony Crowsdale. This is this podcast should be hosted by Billy Brown and Mike McGraw. However, apparently, um, having children at home all day during the COVID-19 pandemic makes it hard for people to do things such as podcast. So I'm going to helm the this episode, um, although I, I helm many episodes and my goal, I mean, I, I host many podcasts in this network. However, my goal is eventually to um, only host a couple and the rest will be hosted by other people. But I currently am the one who owns the equipment. <laughs> And because uh, we've only uh, expanded so far in terms of equipment and I have it at my home, so I'm able to, to host these. So if other people can't come to my house, they generally can't be on the podcast um, as a host because um, we have to have the other line dedicated to a guest. And our guest today is my good friend, Justin Yeager. And if I'm going to start a podcast about reptiles and amphibians, there is no other choice. He had to be the first guest because... <laughs> He is an expert on frogs, specifically poison dart frogs, and we have a history where I actually went and joined him on some field work down in Peru, and then I saw him recently in Ecuador, where he now lives. So, Justin, could you please introduce yourself and maybe give a little background into your, um, give us a little bit of your background, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go from there. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be the first. I know I'm the cheapest guest. I always say yes, so, you know, I really do appreciate that. But, um, yeah, I'm a kid who grew up in Amish country, and all I ever wanted to do was, you know, go to the jungles and go to the rainforest, catch frogs, find new species, you know, the kind of stuff that National Geographic tells you you can do. Um, so when I was in college, I moved down to Costa Rica for a little while and then bounced around Latin America throughout all of my degrees. Um, I did uh, my PhD in New Orleans, finished that up, moved to California for a couple of years for a postdoc, uh, had uh, not the most pleasant time, and then just decided to move back down where I really enjoyed, which is down here. So I'm an evolutionary biologist. I'm really driven by questions, kind of like, why do, we ha- why do these things exist? What is going on? Figuring out the evolutionary history of things. And so poison frogs is really good for really toxic. Justin, could you repeat yeah. the last uh, 10 seconds, the... Um um, yeah, I heard somehow the connection got lost. Justin's no, in in, in um, Quito, Ecuador, right now. Um, I get you, so, so we have a little bit of trouble um, with our feed. Yeah, so. yeah. The internet here is not always the most predictable. We are in the city, and I have fiber optics for the first time in my life, but that doesn't mean anything. But uh, yeah, so I, I'm really interested in evolution, and so these poison frogs really fit the bill for that because they have all these crazy behaviors. They have things like really advanced parental care. They have monogamy in some cases. Not complete, but close enough. Uh, they're also really brightly colored, and they do all these crazy things. You know, sometimes they hybridize. Sometimes you look on one side of the river or one side of a mountain, and then the other side, they're totally different looking. So we're really interested in what's going on with that. And so, yeah, I've been kind of driven by, you know, spending time in the rainforest, doing a lot of hiking and, you know, looking for these, these frogs that I've been studying. And so, yeah, that's how I ended up back in Ecuador. Uh, I was offered a free trip to come down and do a little project. I did that, took a couple of days hiking in the cloud forest and realized that this was really the place I was happiest. And so I moved back down here again. And uh, thank God, got a job. So, yeah. 
that's my background. That's the, the, the 15 seconds of like how a kid from Amish country ends up living in the middle of the Andes and studying poison frogs. And if people, but Tony and I, oh, yeah, go ahead. I'm just, uh, mind you, a lot of you know people, our listeners, aren't necessarily from this region. So when he's saying Amish uh, country, he's referring to um, rural central Pennsylvania. There's a small city out there called Lancaster, and the county surrounding that um, are, uh, it's basically farms and mountains, and there is a uh, community called the Amish. Uh, we call them also the Pennsylvania Dutch, although that encompasses more than just the Amish. Um, but there is um, a German population that has moved to central Pennsylvania, although they, they're also in Indiana and Ohio. Um, actually, now they're in, like, Belize. <laughs> they're all over the place. Um, Peru, Chile, Argentina, yeah. all over the place. And, uh, There's even a Mennonite bakery I found here. So, wow. Yeah, they're, they move around. And, but Pennsylvania, I think, is the most famous for having um, this uh, community. And, you know, um, the Amish in particular, they don't use electricity. They still use um, horse and buggy. Um, although it's very interesting. There's, like, a whole bird watching community. And I'll see them with, like, really high-end cameras, you know, out birding. <laughs> we'll, we'll get talking and whatnot. And I don't... You know, I don't want to be. I don't know how that works <laughs> because the cameras have batteries, and I don't know where they charge them. And um, we've had uh, like Amish crews come do work in the park, um, and they get here. Uh, they hire a driver, and you know, so they pull up in this big like F two fifty, but and it's they, they own it, but they they hire a guy who, who just drives them. It's very interesting, and, it, and it's a big part of uh, growing up in Pennsylvania. So, and, and Justin's from the epicenter of that. So, okay, yeah, it's this tiny, tiny little town. Basically, when you're from a tiny town, it doesn't matter where you're from in a tiny town in the U.S. Um, mine happened to be one that had more cows than people for a while. Uh, but yeah, exactly. It's, you know, sometimes you, you read you know these magazines, Rage or Rick or National Geographic, and you're just like, man, what a dream! Like it'd be, you know, what is it like in these crazy places so remote? And that's kind of what what got me going into this stuff. But our community, yeah, it's a really beautiful place. Um, and debatably has the best desserts in the world. I'd be willing to debate that with anyone who wants to. Uh, but yeah, no, it's uh, it's a really special place. And so tell them the story. Do you remember how you and I met originally? Right. So uh, Justin is also in the punk rock. Um, and just to um, give a little background, um, as we get the story, I, I, I'm a big guy. I'm just shy of six foot and got a full sleeve tattoos. Uh, at the time when I met Justin, I had dreadlocks down to my... Uh, you know, I don't know, halfway down my back. And Justin is, how tall are you? I'm a little shy of 6'8". Right, so Justin is very, very tall, also extensively tattooed, um, very handsome. Uh, and so Justin, okay. um, he's, a, he's a very interesting looking chap, even even amongst, you know, people who are already tattooed and whatnot and crazy looking. So I'm at a, Philadelphia is, the biggest city in Pennsylvania. It's the second biggest city on the East Coast. So it kind of, you know, if you want to, if you're from Pennsylvania um, and you want to see a, a show, um, punk rock, people tend to travel for that. You're going to either go to Pittsburgh or Philly, um, and depending on how, you know, what side of Susquehanna you're on. And um, so, and most likely Philly, even because it's bigger. So um, I see this, you know, giant, cool looking dude. And I'm handing out flyers for a show um, at another show. I mean, I'm at, I'm hosting a show, and I'm handing out flyers for another show. And I hand a flyer to Justin, and he goes, "I'm hands back." He's like, "Sorry, I won't be here." And I just as a joke, I'm like, "Where are you going to be?" He's like, "I'm going to be in South America studying frogs, or, or I forget where you said it. Maybe it was Ecuador at the time." 
and I was like, yo, you're a biologist? I'm, I'm in the nature. So we, we started, you know, talking and keeping in touch. And then I think I was sort of dating this woman down in um, North Carolina where you're going to school and I go to his um, house party with her and you're there and then you invite me to Peru and I go because we're nuts like that. Is that your <laughs> recollection of the story? Yeah, I had just gotten back from a trip somewhere and so I was so pumped to be able to see a show because I hadn't seen any for a long time and, you know, in kind of remote places and then I was back in the city and saw one or two shows that were really bad. And you, I was like just leaving the show. I was really excited, you know. It's you know really, you know, it's just great to see live music like that. And I left, and I was you know really pumped. And then you're handing me this flyer, and I was like, oh man, you know, I'd love to, but you know, I don't even live in Philly, and you know, I'm not going to be anywhere near here. So you know, I just didn't want to waste the paper, and I didn't want to really be rude, you know, throwing it out or something. And you're like, well, what are you going to be? I was like, well. In South America again, and you're like, "What?" And then I think you asked something like, "Have you seen any cool birds?" And I was like, "Uh, yes." It is kind of a byproduct of wherever you are. I was like, "I don't know what kind of cool birds you mean, though." And we ended up chatting, and yeah, in North Carolina, I was doing my masters there in this little tiny place that uh, it's a great university with great staff, but it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. But they had a really great live music scene, and so even people from like the Raleigh area, which was about an hour and a half away would come out to see shows, you know, in this little town where we lived in Greenville. And, uh, yeah, then we reconnected. And I, I openly, you know, people that enjoy their company, I'm always like, hey, you should come down. And, you know, once in a very long while, someone picks you up on that. And then the next thing I know, uh, we're living in the middle of this jungle city, uh, actually in a tiny town. And then uh, Tony comes down and the Peruvians, man, if I could just record a couple of... You do a great calendar of the faces of shock and horror when they would see Tony and I walking around. Like, what the devil are these two people doing here? There's these two. I mean, in the village I lived, they called me Gringasso. So, like, the kids would come out of their huts and just sometimes scream. They go, Gringasso! <laughs> was, you know, this huge kind of guy who would just every morning, really early in the morning, be hiking through the town and then go up into the mountains. And then in the middle of the afternoon, come out super dirty and sweaty and stuff. And no one really knew what the devil we were doing there. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I remember going. To, we went to a couple clubs together, and I remember looking at the bouncers and looking at. And then I looked at us, like the bouncers, and I was like, "Good thing we're we're we're, we're not going to be any problems because." Like, the bouncers, are, yeah, they just look at us and go, "Oh boy." Yeah, I mean, you, you were just buy them a beer or something. Like, no, no, no. We're, yeah, we're just going to sit in the corner. Yeah, yeah. You were literally a foot taller than them. And I was probably 150 pounds heavier than all. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, but we were yeah, we were nothing but uh, gentlemen. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah. So Justin's like, come to Peru, and I'm like, okay, I will because we're nuts like that. And I think I stayed in Peru a month. And I think I spent like 800 bucks or something. <laughs> and so Justin's like, come down. And fly into Lima, buy a ticket to Terrapoto there. Do not buy a ticket in advance because you'll, yeah. you'll, you'll get overcharged. Buy a ticket there and then fly to Terrapoto, go to this guest house and stay there because unfortunately, um, you know, you can't really plan exactly your expeditions because of weather, because of conditions. And we're like, we're still going to be upriver for a couple of days. So just... To fly in to a far country, you don't speak a language at all. At the time, I, I could baby talk in Spanish now. Like, I took, you know, since then I took a couple of years of uh, Spanish. And, and um, 
Um, and I've been to, you know, I took some Portuguese, so, and I don't care what people say, but if you speak Spanish or Portuguese, you can, you can baby talk in either, in, you know, in Brazil or, or any Spanish-speaking country. It, they, they are, for the purposes of, like, being lost and needing to find, get directions or, like, telling someone you like Iron Maiden, like, either language works <laughs> fine. I don't care if people say it. Uh, anyway, so, they're that close. So, but I didn't speak any Spanish at the time. And you're like, yeah, go fly into Lima. Let's see what, nine million people, this giant city. Um, get a, a ticket to this other city, which was not, you know, the Terrapoda is not small. It's like, what, 100,000 people or so? And then, yeah. and and just like, uh, go to this guest house and we'll find you. And you know what? <laughs> it did. It works. Yeah. And I, I was there and I was like sitting at this cafe. I remember I used to read Slug and Lettuce fanzine. You remember that? Yeah. And I remember I used to read uh, Chris Sports. Um, she's this photographer and wrote this fanzine about punk bands. I remember being like, man, she has such a cool life. She's always on the road, always traveling. I was like, I want an interesting life like that. And I remember think, thinking that, that. And then I remember sitting at a cafe by myself in a city I didn't know anybody in, waiting for you guys, who I barely knew, to, to show up. <laughs> And I'm looking at this like rainforest covered mountains, and I'm like, "Yeah, I'm there. I, I now live that life." <laughs> and because it felt normal, because I traveled to Asia, yeah. I've been all around the world already. I was like, "Yeah, yeah, this is this is just this is my life now. I'm just, you know, this is complete normal to me now." And then, uh, so I uh, was just walking around the town, and then at some point, I just hear my name, and there's Justin, because I think you just got you got off the boat, right? And just were like walking around, and you're like, "Hey, have you seen this?" White guy, big white guy with dreads and tattoos. People are like, yeah, he's over there. He's, and then you just followed the crowd, like the people telling you where I was until you found me, right? Is that the case? Yeah, I mean, in, in Terrapoto, we would live there the weekends. So we would need to, you know, go back. We'd have to use the internet, check in with, uh, like, uh, graduate advisor and this kind of things. And, you know, just need normal things once in a while. Like, you know, drinks that are cold instead of <laughs> basement cold, as Evan used to call it. And so we'd go back on the weekends, you know, just kind of check in, get supplies, buy groceries. Uh, you know, we'd usually go out to some discotheque or some nonsense. Um, and so we, it was about a two and a half hour drive from the village where we were living. So in that time, like, you'd have to, like, hope that there would be a taxi that was around that was going to do the drive. And so, you know, in the morning, we would usually tell them on, like, we knew on Fridays that we would, like, leave in the afternoon and we'd come back, like, Sundays or sometimes Monday morning. But then for a little while, what was happening was there was folks that, um, in one of the tiny, tiny villages in between that started doing, um, like carjackings. So, because we were getting really regular with what, like, times that we were leaving. And so, you know, they thought that we'd have cameras and money and this kind of stuff. And, you know, many times we'd have something like that. And then, so we heard that it started becoming these carjackings. So we started having to be like more random with the times that we went. We wouldn't tell, you know, the taxi drivers, you know, early in the morning that we want to go at 3.30, like meet us, you know, at this place. And then we'll go. We just kind of had to wing it a little bit just to make it less predictable. And luckily, you know, we never were robbed or anything, but we kept hearing these stories about that they were, you know, holding up these cars. And we thought you know, what people were telling us was probably trying to catch us and try to you know, get something cool from us. Um, so yeah, so I didn't know what time I was going to be back. I couldn't like plan super well with you. And in that village, you know, we didn't have, you know, even cell phone reception in some areas. There were barely cell phones at that time in Peru. If I'm not mistaken, um, you weren't at that village. You, you guys were on an expedition. Up oh, we were on, ah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't remember where we were. Then. It wasn't the big one where you saw you found Captivus, um, uh, but it was a. Uh, um, man, I'm just thinking like we're already like 16 minutes in, and I'm like, I'm already have like <laughs> three, you know, at least three things I want to ask you about. But sure, no r- worries. R- real yeah, quick, well, I w- the point is, you got to get from the middle of the jungle back to the city, and sometimes you know, you there's no way in Peru that you can plan what time you'll be anywhere because. You know, a lot of times if you're waiting for, like, a bus or a truck, you have to fill that with bodies until you can get anywhere. Yeah. So they'll be like, you know, you remember the hora, hora mismo? It's like there's levels of when you're leaving. And so when they'll tell you you're leaving right now, that can be two hours, three hours. You know, I've waited a day already one time waiting for a boat that they tell me we're leaving right then. So you never know when you get back. So, you know, luckily we found you. And in that town, in, or in Sao Paulo, in the city, it's pretty – people – they're just nosy enough, to, and there's no gringos hardly ever, that they really keep good track on where the gringos are and where they're moving around. It, so when you get back, you can just ask around and be like, hey, have you seen a guy who looks like he's Miller from here? He's huge, he looks like this. And they're like, oh my goodness, yeah, I saw him. So I could track you down reasonably easy. It's funny, because so different from Brazil. When I, when I was in Brazil, um, especially like uh, southeast and southern Brazil, like a lot of people don't realize Brazil has the third most white people in the world. Jeez. Right, and people like uh, think about Brazil. They think it's um, you know in America, if you Brazilian and you move to America, people lump you as a, a Latino and you'll be in a minority. But Brazilian will think of themselves as just a, a white person because they're they'll, they could be one hundred percent European. Mm-hmm. There's very little. There's, there's not the the mestizo in 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 um, Brazil like you have in Peru, right? Um, mm-hmm. So you know. You, Peruvians are, you know, they're mostly um, Spanish mixed with indigenous. But in Brazil, there wasn't as much mixing. So the Europeans, a lot of pure 100%, I mean, they look as, you know, as white as, as you know, they're, they're like see-through. Like, they're that pale in a lot of Brazil. <laughs> so when I was in Brazil, I was kind of like, like, I'm used to traveling in places, you know, other than Europe. Right? I'm used to traveling in places in Asia. You know, I did a lot of travel in Asia before where... I'm just so obviously a, and then when I went to Peru, you know, same thing. Where I'm obviously a foreigner, mm-hmm. and I'm used to if I go to a place where people are speaking a different language, um, and it's not Europe, I'm going to be picked out instantly as a foreigner, and it's not the case in Brazil. And that was really interesting to me. I was like, what? I, like people come up to me and like ask ask me directions in, in Portuguese, <laughs> and then and, and, and like, so that was that was interesting. And I didn't have dreads then, but as a lot of Brazilians didn't have dreads too, so it doesn't really matter, you know. Like they have punk culture there too. That so was very interesting to, uh, when I went to Brazil to see the contrast. Uh, but <laughs> Peru is what was oh so you talking about the robberies and stuff. Here's a funny little anecdote. When I came back to um, when I went back to Lima, I was there um, like two days, and in my hotel, this like six foot tall. She was so blonde. She had white hair. Her eyes were so blue they were gray. Norwegian woman. Um, I like I was there and I was talking to her and, and eventually she's like, will you, will you go to dinner with me tonight? Will you, will you go to dinner with me tonight? I was like, okay, sure. And she, you know, she's like, I can't go anywhere. I had a falling out with my travel partner. I can't go anywhere because I'm the spectacle and people surround me. So I, I need a, a male's company. I was like, yeah, sure. And, you know, um, and I actually ended up giving her my knife because I was about, I was leaving. I literally had to fly out like the next night or whatever. I gave her my knife. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Yo, you're in trouble." But she was just saying it was like, 
And but anyway, I wanted to go bird watching at this spot in Lima. Uh, I forget what it's called now. This little little spot on the on the ocean there, a little estuary. And mm-hmm. and I was like, "Well, I'm going here. Do you, if you want to come with me?" And she's like, "Is it safe?" I'm like, "Yeah, it's totally safe." And and we went and we had a lovely time. It was great. And um, you know, went to dinner that night, and then you know, I flew out, and you know. Um, but anyway, the uh, like I get home and like two days later, I'm like looking at like some birding list, sir. Uh, or like message board and it's like warning my I, I'm a bird guide and I took my crew my whole my, my uh, all my uh, you know my uh, clients to the, that spot I went to in, in Lima and they got all their binoculars all their cameras all their scopes all their money and their passports stolen Jeez. at that spot and I was like oh <laughs> guess it wasn't safe yeah, who knows? There's no assurances when you're in the jungle or when you're, you know, cities or anywhere. Yeah. It's a shame, though, because I imagine for you guys, like, binoculars and scopes and things are really personal items, too. You have, you know, a long yeah. history with them, and you've seen all your crazy birds with them, and, you know, it would just be such a shame for something like that. Absolutely. And especially, you know, being a tourist or being, you know, anywhere far from home, it's never fun to be in a situation like that. But, you know, thankfully, you guys got out of it without any issues. Yeah, I have been, I mean, I've, I mean, I'm, I don't think... Even where I, I think I look like I'm too much trouble, um, you know. And also, you know, I think I think the street smarts you grow up with in Philadelphia, I think, kind of translate yeah. to the world. You know, you're kind of like you kind of know a shady situation when it comes. You know. Yeah, I, I, I mean, between growing up out well, you know, visiting Philadelphia a lot and then doing a PhD in New Orleans. I mean, I got robbed at gunpoint in my house in New Orleans for two dollars, and he tried. He thought about stealing the burrito that I bought, and then he luckily let me have the burrito. But uh, that was, you know, it's like. You do all the right things, and sometimes you still you know, get those issues. But it does help. I mean, living in Quito, Quito's—it's not—it's a quite safe city by far. Yeah. You know, it's very safe. But there's there's enough little areas. You know, the pickpocketing and stuff is always an issue. But you know, thankfully we haven't had any issues in our neighborhood. You know, we're kind of up on the hill, so yeah. we we don't really have much traffic or any nonsense like that. But yeah, um, I remember <laughs> in Brazil, um, talking about like streets where it's like translating. Um, one of uh, I, w- I went after a couple years after I was there with you. I went to Brazil. Uh, um, even though I was in my thirties, I went there on a school trip because I decided to go study abroad and I went back to school. And I was there with you know, I was, it was only two guys, and the rest were were um, young women. Um, and one of them was one woman. You know, we're out with we're out dancing at this outdoor you know club kind of thing. Um, and she's like making out with this guy on the dance floor, and then like she she goes off with him, you know. I mean, they've been making out for like 20, 30 minutes or more, or like, and then they, they go off together. And her friends are like, "We gotta find her," blah blah blah. And like, I'm like, "Okay, we're in Salvador. Like, you how are you gonna find her? Like, you just knock on random doors." And then these two guys are like. Oh, we'll take you there. We're his friends. We'll, we'll find, we think we know, we know where he'll be. And I, I just go to these women. I'm like, I'm like, why? If your friend is been making out with someone all night and then go, leaves with that person, I think what's about to happen is consensual. Like, because it's like, you know, <laughs> um, and and even if it wasn't, like, how would you possibly figure out where to find them? And if these guys are his friend, why are they going to like interrupt his? You know, hook up. I'm like, they're not, they're not his friends. They're gonna take you somewhere. I'm like, 
like, I'm like, I'm going. If you're, I don't think you should go, but I, if you're going, I'm going with you. And that was just like, and I, I was getting an example of like, I think you know, sometimes street smarts are universal. But let's get back. You know, we're like 25 minutes. Yeah, in, I was going to say this is turning into herping ain't easy, like the the other uh, version of herping. Yeah, but this is but the, oh. the point is like let's like um you, you know this is fun and we're catching and these are field stories are fun. You are an expert in poison dart frogs. We looked at poison dart frogs who are down there. Um, you may think there's other things of your career that are much um more interesting to talk about. Um, and if you and we can certainly touch on that. Um, but would you want to talk about the whole like Captivus Mysterious Mysteriosus thing? I think that's really cool. If, if is that like, sure. and then we can you know if you want to highlight other things you've because I think that's a really cool story and I was I saw a little part of that you know. Sure. Well, so I I wouldn't say I'm an expert in poison frogs. I don't really know that any of us are, but uh, you know I've studied them for a while and I've seen a lot of them. Um, and with that, you know, I mentioned before that, you know, when you're a kid, you have all these dreams of, like, you know, wanting to go to these crazy places, wanting to find a new species or, you know, things like that. And so we all kind of had a list of the species that was like, what is your, like, dream thing? Or, like, what area do you want to go explore? And so we would you know, constantly be doing expeditions and, like, going, you know, new places, trying to find new species. You know, the lab I was part of, they found... And by the end, I don't know, about 9, 10, 12 new species. And so they had a head start uh, before I got there. One of my lab mates, Evan, is already living there. And so I was living in Ecuador and uh, finishing my uh, undergrad. And then I went back and substitute taught in uh, Pennsylvania for a little bit. And I decided to move back and kind of get a head start before my master's. And so I was in Peru with him. And we kind of, you know, we would do all these trips to different places. You know, we just... It was Google Earth was new at the time, and so that was kind of a huge tool for us because we would basically, you know, we knew where most of the species roughly were found. Even if we hadn't found them yet, we knew vaguely where to find them. But we could use this Google Earth thing then and just kind of trace up and down rivers and see if there was trails to get into forests, and we could, you know, kind of scope out these areas that previously, you know, you just have a regular map, and you'd have no idea if there was, a, you know, a tiny foot trail or if there was, like, a little village that wasn't on the map or something. And so we started using Google Earth a lot, and we'd pick all these kind of random areas to kind of go explore. And there was a species that was really, really poorly known. And at the time, it was called Dendrobates captivus. And it was a species that the name captivus was really alluring. You know, it was named, there's a couple warring uh, indigenous tribes in this area where it was found. And these tribes, you know, were constantly battling each other. One of them is, you know, related to the tribe that are the commonly kind of called the head shrinkers and uh and so there was a prospecting group um going through this area of europeans including this one guy harvey bassler harvey bassler if i recall was a geologist uh, but he also had an interest in kind of you know whatever he'd find and so as he would be you know surveying he would also you know collect you know reptiles amphibians whatever he'd find and so he found in this region this little poison frog which was really interesting uh, deposit in a museum, but during that time there was a war party that was going either up or down river and had these like tied up bloody prisoners. And so he, you know, eventually the species was named Captivus in honor of these warriors that they saw. And so it was something that was deposited uh, and kind of lost and then found later and formally described. 
But the thing was that the specimens were kind of poorly uh, preserved, and so none of us, you know, we didn't know really like what they were related to particularly well. We didn't know certainly about the colors. Um, and so one of my lab mates at the time, Evan, um, who is really great, you know, naturalist and also really great in the field and really, really, you know, dedicated to studying poison frogs, this was his kind of dream species to go find. And the only issue was that we knew that it was potentially really dangerous. And so he did a ton of legwork and a ton of investigation. And the point was that we wanted to go find this thing because we simply didn't, no one knew anything about it. There was a few specimens, had no idea, you know, what it's, the call sounded like, what the colors were like. You know, it's a small size, so it potentially was related to this group of frogs that we had been studying, but we didn't think so. It was probably, you know, quite different. Um, and just really it was, it warranted going to go find, but the issue was that, as you know, I said, you know, this area is really, really dangerous. You know, there's a couple pretty aggressive indigenous tribes there, but there's also geography of getting there. You know, it's a couple, for us, it was about a day car ride. And then I think it was about two and a half, three days in boat, but there's this really steep, uh, narrowing of a river in this kind of canyon. And it's called the Pongo de Manzariche. And that area is traditionally, I mean, it's just really dangerous. It's, you know, the river is just cut in a small fraction of what it was on either side of it. So the water's really fast. Um, you know, it's just really dangerous to cross. And so, you know, there was all these kind of obstacles and reasons, you know, why the folks weren't going there to go find these things. You know, A, there wasn't that many people interested. B, you know, there's the strong potential of, you know, warring tribes or, you know, having some, you know, kind of conflict with the tribes. And then there was also this pond that they had to cross through. And so, you know, we'd been there a couple of years on and off, like doing our field work for our various degrees. And this was one of our kind of last hurrahs. We really wanted to do it. We spoke to some people and they're like, man, this is a bad idea. Like, you know, I don't think, you know, I just, I wouldn't do it. There's a German guy who has been, you know, a frog expert that we had uh, been living near and knew. And he said something he was like to the degree of like, it's like, I hope to see you alive again was how he said goodbye to us. Like it was, it was a dangerous trip. We were in our twenties, you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure that we wouldn't do it again. Like if it was now, but I think we'd think about it a lot more. You know, we were a little more, you know, cavalier about, you know, we took it very seriously. But, you know, this was a trip we wanted to do. And so, you know, we ended up, Evan did a ton of, you know, legwork and contacting folks. <clears throat> he ended up finding a guy whose uncle was like a logger that went through that area. So he was kind of known by the communities. Um, so, yeah, long story short, you know, we, we drive like a day. We get to this place. We, uh, it's called Yuri Magos. It's a kind of jungle city in the river. And then we, you know, contact, you know, get a boat get all the fuel, <clears throat> get food, you know, get everything packed. And we leave real early in the morning. We get as you know far as you can go during daylight. We stay in this little town. The next morning, you know, we would just poke around real quick. You know, we, you have this mix of you're dying to get into this place that you're going because you know it's just the middle of nowhere and no one's been there for a long time, especially looking for frogs. Um, and then, But we also were going to all these other places we'd never been. And we really wanted to go to the forest. And, so, you know, we poke around and ask people and, you know, there's a little documentary about this little. It kind of shows all the details. So people would just kind of, they'd be telling us, yeah, there's all these amazing things here. And then, you know, my lab mate Jason, who has been used to this by that point, 
we're showing him this poison frog book. So he would show him frogs that are from, you know, other countries, way outside the range, you know, they should never be in this area. And they're just like, oh, yeah, that's here, that's here, that's here. So we're finally like, all right, let's just get in the boat. we got to keep going. So we keep going, and we get to the nearest large village to where we want to go. And this is where there starts to be kind of mixed tribes uh, from different indigenous communities. So we start talking to some of them, and we ask, like, can we pay you guys to come with us and speak on our behalf, you know, in case we hit any issues, you know, upriver that you can say, you know, with these you know, kids who are looking for these frogs and, you know, we're not you know, prospecting, we're not doing any, you know, anything else. Um, and so, yeah, eventually we get this boat full of people and we get up to the, the Pongo and, you know, the boat charter we have had done it before, but it had been years and years in the past. He was real, real confident until we get there. And then he's, you know, we take one attempt at it, we don't really get too far. And he suggests that we all get out. So we take all of our gear and then hike through the Pongo and, you know, we set up the cameras and stuff. We were filming that little documentary at the time. And we just watched this guy go. And we're like, man, I really hope he can make it through this. You know, I'm not the most confident person, you know, driving boats. And I certainly wouldn't have done it. You know, maybe I would have you know, tied a line and pulled it real slowly through the pongo, you know, or something. I don't know. But, um, man, he fights and fights and fights. And he makes it through, eventually and crosses. And then we get there. <clears throat> And now we have to deal with the, the local tribes. So we have been told that, you know, it's always good to bring, you know, some gifts and barter. And so we were told that some of the things that we're really interested in were always like batteries and noodles. Two things they simply, noodles? you know, can't get. Noodles, yeah, mm-hmm. just making soups and things. You know, nothing crazy. So, you know, I'll try not to make this story too, too long. Um, so we get there, we, we talk. We, there's a Peruvian military outpost, so we check in, and we just kind of tell them what we're doing, and they're like, you know, these, these really young guys with big machine guns, and they're like, man, if you have any trouble, just let us know, like, we'll go take care, and we're like, no, 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 this is like the last thing we want is, you know, to interrupt the kind of, you know, peace in this area, so we go, and we set up camp on this little tiny beach that's, you know, a little ways, you know, I don't remember, maybe 30 minutes, 40 minutes from the community, um, and then we're like, man, we're first sitting on this beach, like, this is the most obvious place to camp. So we're like, maybe we should, like, put a couple tents in, the, like, this area, and then, like, the rest of us have hammock tents. So we hit up in the, like, hills, you know, found little areas and kind of tried to hide, you know, who knows if they send, like, a war party or something. All we hear is, like, stories of, like, people being killed and, like, a lot of aggression and things. You know, I think there was the, those doctors, the Operation Sunshine, the cleft palate surgeries that, Evidently, they had sent some doctors into this community, and they were, you know, trying to help some of the children, and someone, according to the story, like, accused them of touching one of the girls or something, and then they, like, slaughtered them. And there had been a lot of, like, people that, you know, had issues, and a lot of people killed in that area. So we, in the back of our mind, you know, have done this the best that we can. We've taken all the precautions. We're like, you know, we're going to bring all these, you know, members of their same, you know, tribes with us that can start, you know, start the dialogue. And so we sent the boat with them up to the nearest the community where we knew historically some maybe 90 years before they had been found. So we asked them, can you, you know, start the dialogue and ask them if we would be welcome enough to at least come and kind of plead our case and ask if we could have permission to come there. And these guys, we thought, you know, maybe it would be, you know, half an hour, an hour or something. So we crossed the river and we kind of were poking around, see if we can find the frogs like right where we're camped. And these guys, like, it's dark. And they're not back yet. So it's three, four hours or something. It was just way longer than we expected. And in the back of your mind, you already have this paranoia. And so they finally come back and we're like, how did it go? And they're like, well, 
you know, <laughs> we got no positive response. They're like, yeah, they're, you know, they're willing to talk, but like no one was smiling and everyone was really bummed out and kind of like, you know, who knows what had happened. So we're all like, you know, we're dying to get to this place because we know these frogs are there. And, you know, these guys just are not giving us any confidence. So then we get up real early, we go there, go to the community. They're super nice, you know, they're welcoming, they're kind of curious, you know. There's a, a guy, an older man, who, like, comes up and is walking with us. And he has, like, a hand-poke tattoo of, like, cobra on his arm. And he's like, man, we're the same. Like, we have a tattoo. And I was like, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, you know, I guess at the younger age, he was recruited in the Army and had gone away. Anyway, so we sit down at the tribal community, and they're very nice, like, very kind. You know, I can't, you know, they're, we, we don't speak, they speak a language called Aguaruna, none of us speak that. So we're trying to work, you know, us through translators using Spanish, and so, you know, things are taking a little bit longer. So they invite us, and they're, you know, very cordial, and we go in the tribal council area, and then the whole community comes around because, you know, they're not used to a bunch of folks like us there. And then um, they ask us to do, you know, we do this formal process, you know, so we, we introduce ourselves. They were really adamant that they wanted everyone to introduce themselves and say, you know, about themselves in their native language. And then we translate that to Spanish and then from Spanish um, to Aguaruna. And so we had a Dutch kid with us, which obviously was a bit of a problem. So he had to do Dutch to English and Spanish to Aguaruna. So this is taking a little while. And we, you know, introduce everyone and we tell them, you know, how we're coming there, you know, just very openly asking permission, you know, we're really interested in this frog. And they were a little dubious, you know, why people would travel so far to find the frog. So, um, it turns out that there were some guys there that, according to what we were told, were drunk and were kind of running around and screaming and none of us understood what they were talking about and they were trying to kind of start a little riot against us. And so, you know, we're sitting there and they're talking in Aguaruna. It's a language none of us understand. We know this is a really dangerous area. And so when the tensions get a little higher, we're kind of, you know, freaking out. And then I walk up and I go to the chief. I said, I'm so sorry. I really don't mean to interrupt you. I just wanted to let you know, like, you know, we really, <laughs> we don't understand what's going on. We'd really like to be able to communicate with you guys. If there's any concerns you have or anything that we can do, you know, we just really want to go to the jungle and find these frogs. We really don't want any issues. Please let us know, you know. And he's like, oh, don't worry. He's like, have a seat. And I was like, well, the last thing I need to do is sit in between a bunch of people arguing in a language I don't understand. But I sat there. But, man, you know, if you in your life you've ever had this kind of, like, you know, shaking and kind of, like, nervous, like your leg just kind of starts shaking, that's what I was doing. And, you know, just trying to stay calm, but just like, man, I don't, I really don't want to die. Like, how, do, how would someone explain that? My mom would be so pissed that we did this something stupid like this. Um, and in the end, like, they, they wanted, like, more than nickels and batteries. They're like, oh, bring us a $2,000 and a radio. And we're like, yeah, totally. Next time we come back, we'll, we'll definitely bring that. So then we ended up, you know, getting permission. Everything calmed down. Everyone's super nice. They fed us. And then we go into the jungle. And it's like, man, as soon as we're in the jungle, we walk maybe 20, 25 minutes tops. I don't even think that. And we find the first frog. I mean, it's like right away. And it's just totally different from what we expected. You know, we thought maybe these would be like shades of, you know, browns and tan. And they have what they call flash marks. So they're like little um, spots in the armpits in the front and the hind legs. And we thought maybe those would be kind of white or something based on how they're preserved ones. Like, these things are jet black. Like the shiniest black 
and they have you know these lines of this kind of really light tangerine orange, and then the flash marks are bright yellow. So these things are stunning, and we had no idea what they would look like. And they turned out being you know, totally different from kind of what some of the things we were expecting, particularly in the colors. And so we're blown away with how amazing they are. And you go from like the low of like really being worried. You know, there was one of the guys. None of us know if this was true. Said that they took a vote whether they were going to kill us or not, and they voted to like negotiate. I don't know if it's true. Like, I don't think any of us will ever really know. But that's one of the stories that went around. So we like leave that tension of like that for a long time, and then get into the jungle, and it's this beautiful like, you know, untouched forest. And then we find those frogs that we were like really, really keen on finding. It you know, three days of being traveling to get to this place and you're just like imagining how great this is going to be and it was everything we expected everything we would hope for and then all of us you know because we have a little bit of our kind of egos we're like all right screw that you know that guy found that frog we, we all have to find like a frog of our own so you know we can have the experience we ended up finding a bunch of frogs we got all the calls and then the species ended up being re-described into a new genus so my lab mates did a lot of work on taxonomy and they ended up uh, describing a new genus, which fit that frog, and then to tie in with the other story you were mentioning with Mysteriosis, it's another member of that genus. So it ended up being this new genus called Exodobates because it's this ancestral kind of ancient group of these frogs, and both which live in crazy areas. One in this area, and then the other one in the middle of the mountains, in the coldest area you would never imagine finding a poison frog. And that's where Tony comes in. Yeah. So. I get the I get there and we um, I go. Um, it's pretty cool. We um, I'm in Tarapoto and then I, we go to what Sauce. Um, we go on like a little expedition, like by car, to look for some mm-hmm. to collect look and collect some frogs. Not not these ones. Um, I think they were they're the orange and black ones. I think you um, you split them off. Um, yeah. So those are the two species that. The mimic one, or the one species mimics the other. So the one is called Imitator, which is the mimic, and then the other one ended up being redescribed and named in honor of our master's advisor, which is now Summer's Eye. And they're the genus Renitomyer, which was another new genus which was resurrected, not by our alumnates, but by other folks. And that was really cool. Um, especially because, like, it, it was a wonderful trip, and, and I'm not really saying there's a but, but. Just so you know, um, birds and poison frogs keep different times. So, like, you know, to, to see birds, you really got to be in the rainforest at like before dawn, and then they pretty much as soon as it gets like sunny, they stop. Uh, and poison frogs are out all day, so we get to like the, the field in the, you know like noon or something. <laughs> and, like, and what I thought was amazing was like the first thing I did with you, we we go you know a couple hours and back of pickup trucks or whatever to the spot. And you guys just jump right into the forest and then come right back out all with frogs. Like, I was just like, really? That is that easy? <laughs> and, like, um, and that was, that was really cool. Um, yes, yeah, so we did that. And then we went to, um, the pastor's house. So that to get there, we take a taxi, like a couple hours on dirt roads. And then we stayed at the pastor's house. Um, and then we go. Some people would hike from there, but you and I would take a, a pecky pecky, like this motorized canoe, up the Wyaga River, which is a tributary of the Amazon. And then we'd hike in from there. And mm-hmm. and I remember when we uh, were doing these transects with, um, with like clay models to see about predation. Um, 
and then we come out and um like the village elder he wanted me to speak in my native tongue remember oh jeez. yeah the mayor yeah oh, and then every, we drank every... that chuchuasi yeah, he had chuchuasi, or the other thing he would make would be this homemade ginger liqueur. Every day he would be kind of drunk, and he would always be telling me, man, it'd be great if you, sometime you could give a talk to the community and tell them what you're doing here and this and that. I was like, Sarah, like, I did that last week. Like, I've done it a few times. Like, I really don't know why this guy was just so drunk, but he was always so excited to see me. And I was like, oh, great, you know, like, you know, now we have really cordial, and he just like wouldn't remember me. I'm like, I'm here like every week, you know, multiple times a week sometimes. So yeah, it was a weird community. It was what language really did they nice. speak there? Ah, uh, they spoke Quechua, and I think they also spoke uh, another language. I'm not sure. There's another indigenous language. Quechua is you know. almost like Swahili, right? Where like it's not necessarily the the native tongue of the indigenous folks, but it's something they can speak to each other, right? Yeah, it's a really commonly used language. It's kind of, you know, if it's not Spanish, it's oftentimes Quechua and then other, like, other dialects or other languages. Um, but that community, yeah, was, you know, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, I remember he, uh, um, he wanted to talk to me and he speaks to me in Spanish and you say, oh, I'm sorry, he doesn't speak Spanish, and then he switched to Quechua, and he's like, he doesn't speak Quechua either. So in his mind, is like, wait, you don't speak Spanish, you don't speak Quechua. What do you speak? But that's when you know you're really in the middle of nowhere. When they're like, oh, you know, oh, you don't speak Spanish. We got that handled. Don't worry about that. And you're like, whoa, 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 no, you're further in the direction from where we're coming from. Yeah, I mean, this is a village yeah. that literally has. There's no road to it, right? It's only by the river. Oh no, no, yeah, there's just a tiny little like cement dock, and then that's it. And ironically, you know my dog, uh, his name is Chanchito. Chanchito is named in honor of a pig from that community. His name was Hueso, which was bone. And this pig would follow us all over the place. And it was this guy's best friend. And they'd just go everywhere. And that pig ruined a couple of my experiments because it would just destroy everything. But it was so friendly, it wouldn't follow you. So I went back one day, and I was like, well, where's Hueso? And he's like, oh, I ate him. I was like, oh, man. That was like your best friend. So I named my dog in honor of uh, a pig from that community. And there was a other place we went that little like where we stayed at a hotel a little motel on the side of the road and remember we we, we uh, hired the um like the motor oh bike taxi, yeah and he like abandoned us and we had to walk back and we called a, a ride a logging truck back and that was pongerly kind of rachi yeah so when they were they were at that time they were building a road which connected from Tarapoto and would go into brazil and so the road wasn't completely finished and kind of the center of operations was in this little Kind of jungle is a big town, um, and yeah, and there was there was where there was a javelina outside too, a peccary that was like kind of a hotel pet. Yeah, I, um, I, I fed it like um, marshmallows and stuff. <laughs> like you do. <laughs> yeah, and it was like it was really soft. I mean, it's actually like it was softer than I expected. It was still got a little bit bristly, but it was like a little bit softer than I expected, and it was really friendly, like to get petted. And then like, mm-hmm. and then I remember the it was. Um, what, what they call it, uh, Senior Chancho? Ch- uh, what they call it? What's his name? It's like Mr. Pig, right? Was the yeah. And I remember, like, the one guy was like, "There used to be two, and then he rubbed his belly." <laughs> and that was where that restaurant. Welcome was, to the Chinese restaurant life. across the street. Like, this, this, I mean, oh. it was just like open air, like, like 
you know. We all we joke now. That's it had one of the most unfortunate names. It's called Don Chino, in which if you would translate it, it would be it's like the honorable Chinese man. Like I don't know how you would translate it differently, but yeah, Don Chino was like the only restaurant, and uh, they never had change. So I'd give him like a hundred soles, which was about thirty dollars. I could feed two or three people for a month with that whenever we'd stay there. Those were those were the good old days. So you just give them that, and then you would just eat like, like it was like a tally. Yeah, I just kept a tally. Yeah, I just had it. I mean, they just never. You know, we just struggle with the change thing two or three times. But when your meals are, you know, maybe a dollar fifty or something, it just was. You know, it was way harder to get change. And there's only a handful of shops in this little community. So everywhere we went, it's just the same thing. We just give them, you know, X amount of money, and I would buy food for their family, and they would cook for us, and we would just, you know, when they need a refill, we just bring them more money. It worked out great. People treated us really, really well in those places. And like I said, you know, some of the kids would scream and be scared and call me Gringasso and whatnot. But the communities, by and large, were really, really accepting of us. Yeah. I mean, especially, you know, if you don't know who people are, these gringos show up, they rent half your pastor's house and then just disappear in the jungle all the time and come out. And, you know, we're always asking people for if we could hire them for favors, you know, doing our laundry or like, you know, cooking for us and this and that. You know, a lot of folks didn't really know what we were up to. Or, you know, they didn't know we were a bunch of grad students studying frogs in the jungle, but you know, they were always real nice to us. And I think we also did a little fair bit to stimulate the local economies. But we had a nice time. Yeah, I remember um, Sapo was the word for frog, right? Yeah. Yep. And I well, it's toad technically, but it's the slang that they'll call everything that's a frog or toad. So I remember um, we were, like, in the pastor's house, and these little kids run up, and they toss handfuls of toadlets into the room be like you want frogs here you go <laughs> yeah sometimes there's an unfortunate side effect of studying something people want to be really helpful and then you're like oh my goodness what am i going to do with this now yeah um, yeah the one those kids were great the one thing that one of our best tricks that summer was they would make these like amazing like freeze pops and we had a we bought a refrigerator and shipped it in on a truck i think it was like a hundred bucks and we were like, oh, I don't know, like, is it okay with the grant to spend, you know, but it ended up being really worth it because there was just simply nothing that was cold. And when we were, you know, we could preserve our food better, but we also, like, getting cold water or soda or something after hiking all day it was amazing. But then we had to freeze it. And these kids were like, hey, can we make, like, freeze pops? And I was like, oh, I guess. They're like, hey, do you have any money? And I was like, so you could give them, like, a dollar or two. And these kids would sit there and hand grate coconuts and do all this stuff, make all these freeze pops. And I, you know, I pay for all the ingredients and I give them some. But then, if we needed anything done, you could always give them these free pops and they'll do it. Like, you know, take out the trash. Hey, like, can you, like, while we're gone, can you sweep or something or do this or that? These kids were like pumped to do anything for these freeze pops. So that was like our currency for the one summer. It's just like everything for a freeze pop is great. Plus, for us, I mean, I would have done the same thing. It's so hot. And, you know, if it's the middle of the day and if we weren't in the jungle, you know, if we were sick or if we had a day off or something. You'd be sitting there, and it's a tin roof, and it's, I don't know, 90, 100 and some degrees, no wind. We was five of us sharing three oscillating fans. So like one of those, you kind of like knew the patterns, and you knew that like seven, ten seconds before you'd have the fan again, you're just like, oh, it's so hot. Yeah. <laughs> but, That's... yeah, those were fun times. <laughs> All right, so back to Exit of Babies, right? 
So yeah. looking up on Wikipedia, it says there's three species now. There's also the Exhibitus condor. Yeah, there's condorensis. There's a third one that was found recently. And I've, I've seen them not that long ago. Um, they're in a, like a museum collection. They're live ones, but it's, uh, it's a conservation group here that has a few of them. So, yeah, that was it was exciting when they found the third one, and it's not far from where we were either that they found them. And Are they all probably the, a lot of these... The Marinone drainage? Is that... Yeah, they're in that Cordillera Condo. And that's also an area that a lot of people think is really kind of a gold mine for new species. There's, as far as I understand, there's one university that has a research station there, but there's not a ton of people that are kind of poking around. And, you know, even on the Ecuadorian side here, a lot of my colleagues are really interested in folks that study trees, that study birds, the orchid people go there every once in a while, and they're constantly digging up new species. And this is a, so a, this is, a sub-range of the um, Andes within... Yeah, the, the straddles the border of Peru and Ecuador. And Ecuador, and, and it's on the um, Amazon side, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So, and yeah, it's a really magic place. And so where we had went, so just to give a little bit, you know, the species that we wanted to see is now called Exodobates mysteriosus. So it's this mysterious frog. It's really it lives high up in the mountains in these small communities and there's really only a couple tiny pockets of populations left so it's a species that man if you go to these places you would just swear there would definitely never be a poison frog here because it's just nothing like you know lowland or cloud forest it's real high elevation it's really dry and these things are just kind of like hanging on cliff sides or you know tiny trees and it's a tiny frog that what we knew at the time, they were maroon with white polka dots. So it's just it's the weirdest looking thing. There's a couple of variations now. There's kind of some brownish kind of chocolatey ones. There's, you know, towards, you know, maroon towards kind of purpley, kind of wine-colored, merlot-y. Like, there's a couple of variations in the spots of different sizes. You know, now years and years past, people are finding some other little tiny populations. And it just, this was like kind of one of the holy grail species. Just really, really weird. They live in these bromeliads, and at the time, someone had, this German researcher had been saying that they, in the bromeliads, they have the entire family that lives in one bromeliad. And so I was really, you know, interested in that. I didn't even talk about doing my master's thesis studying, like, the population dynamics of them. Because, you know, what happens when there's a fixed number of bromeliads and your family grows? Like, where does dispersal take place? What happens? You know, it's the genetic structure of these populations. Um... But anyway, this German guy, he just kind of considered them hits. So he had this conservation project. He raised a lot of funds. They protected a lot of the lands where they were from. And he was kind of the gatekeeper to get in there. And so we had collaborated with this guy for a number of years. And my master's advisor had been really, really generous with him in terms of, you know, helping him with some supplies and, you know, paying him for consultation and help and whatnot. And uh, eventually we had a falling out with him, uh, as did the majority of the country and many people. But... Um, you know, we just were like, oh, man, now we're never going to get to go to this area. And we're like, well, we know where it is. And, like, you know, this is a private reserve, but, like, I'm sure we can, you know, other people, you know, they're like, you know, I'm sure we can find them somewhere else. And so we just kind of decided that, you know, it's just not fair. You can't keep people away from, you know, the community and the forest. He doesn't own all, you know, he doesn't, it's a trust that owns it as far as I understand. And so, you know, we just figured if we go to this place, like, we can probably find some. So we decided to go there, and, you know, Tony, you were with us then, and our other lab mate, Tiffany, came on that trip, and, you know, normally she was cruising around looking for uh, an amphibian disease and collecting samples, so most of us didn't get to overlap much. 
so it was great. We all got to go to this place, and the like place to stay was like it wasn't a monastery, but it was it was like kind of like a monastery, I guess. And uh, you know they had real comfortable, real nice beds. I think we paid I don't know under two dollars maybe a night. Um, and the whole community were so welcoming and so nice, but oh my goodness, it was did so just, cold. Did you just show up? I mean, because um, I, I arrived there with you and um, Evan and Dave? What's the other guy? Um, Jason. Jason. Yeah, Evan and Jason got there ahead of us. And did they just, like, walk around until they found somewhere to stay? How do they arrange that? I think someone had mentioned the place that you could stay because in that town it was really small. I don't know if there was even hotels or anything, but I just know that they had, you know, worked out to stay there. So, you know, we showed up and, you know, it's, it's kind of unmistakable. It's like this church. So uh, we just, you know, cruised up there and met them. And also just, you know, if, if this is a podcast of mini adventures, I mean, you don't just drive on the road to get there. You go from, you know, where we were, travel to like one small city and the, you know keep in mind cities in Latin America are not you know we're not talking New York City or Atlanta or something you know, these are pretty small then you go to another one and then you like take a cable car across a canyon so you take all your stuff and then on the other side is waiting for you there's like a taxi and you can jump in this taxi or another you know taxis are also private cars and they take you into the village and then from there you know we had to ask where this place was and kind of I remember I was sitting outside for a few minutes and just kind of like serving the land and they finally answer and like let us in and then we you know reunite with the group um so you know it's not it's not quite the you know hop in your car and we'll drive there you know it's a bit of an adventure you switch cars three or four times and you know, taking a cable car across a canyon hundreds of feet up above the ground over a river is you know a bit of a, an adventure as well and so all this builds up and you get there and you're like hey, man, in the middle of the mountains and so you know again like i can't impress enough you know there's a lot of times where you kind of have this search image of like habitat and you spend a lot of time catching and looking for frogs or birds or whatever and you know where they live and this is the opposite of that. And so then we you know, talked to the guys and they're so happy to have us come visit and we just said, you know, we're going to take a bunch of pictures and stuff. Is that okay? Like, would you be willing to come with us? We don't want anyone to you know, think we're up to anything, you know, shady. They show us around and we're just giggling and so happy and we see these little crazy polka dotted frogs. And then, you know, we spent another time in that one first habitat, and the other guys went looking for other habitats and found some other spots. And uh, it was great. It's just it's sometimes you go to a place so unique, and when you get to share that really nice experience, something especially that we had spent years wanting to do this, and, you know, we got to share it with Tony. And Tony's just eating it up as much as all of us and having a great time. And You know, we're sitting on a cliff face of a mountain, you know, over a mountain range, in you know this arid area that's you know freezing cold at night and barely warm during the day and there's little white polka dotted poison frogs creeping around that's a really nice time and do you see the look on your face when you first get to see one of these you know like i i actually found um oh if i'm not mistaken when we got there i actually found one first i couldn't capture it i was like here's one right here and you came and grabbed it and to see the look on your face when you have this thing in your hand just like you know, I've, it must be like me when I see a, a life bird. But the thing is, is mm-hmm. there's um, there's so many more birds <laughs> than, <laughs> than than frogs, right? So like, you know, so it must be like a good. It must be like me seeing ten life birds or something like significant, like a harpy eagle or something. You know, there's a, there's a lot of buildup, and in that case too, you know, there's a lot of kind of I don't want to say political because it's just a private person, but you know, 
there was a lot of stuff that you know we really wanted to do this and you know it just we finally got to see these things and a lot of us we've seen you know just thousands of poison frogs at this point and dozens and dozens of species and whatnot but it doesn't matter when you find one new one that you haven't seen and you really want to see it's just it's amazing yeah. you know recently i went to a cloud forest. well i guess about a year or so ago i went to a cloud forest um, i've been working lately on some glass frogs and i went with some of my colleagues and we were starting a project there and another friend of mine who's a photographer knew i was dying to see this crazy lizard and so I just get a random message, like, really late at night. And I was like, dear God, like, you know, we were just out in the stream, like, super late. I'm exhausted. You know, we get up early. And it's just like, come to this, like, place early in the morning. I have a surprise for you. And I go, and, like, he has, like, some of these lizards for me to finally see. And you know, it was just amazing to get to see these things, snap a few pictures, and then they release them. So, you know, it's just... When you see something that has such a buildup that you either know about or think you know about or, you know, just really want to see, the first, like, minute or two when you finally get to see it, there's just so much to take in. You know, these little frogs, you know, I, I can think back on it now. I've only seen them that one time, you know, that one trip. And that is, oh, I don't know how many years ago now. We're talking 14 years ago, maybe? Yeah, so. Wow. yeah. So, you know, it's it's the same thing, you know, that's the wonderful thing about nature and the really great thing about our jobs, you know, is that once in a while you get to do one of these things that just really is a life-changing experience. And, you know, us chatting, you asked me about these two trips, I haven't thought about those trips in a long time. You know, I, I really treasure the experiences, but I haven't thought about it. But when you think about it now, you, you're brought back to the same kind of feeling, you know, you remember like what you ate for breakfast, because like everything you knew that that day was going to be so memorable and you really, really were looking forward to it. And so that's still here. You know, that's, that's what I love about the career. You know, I spend probably 95% of my time on my computer and just, you know, writing or analyzing or doing whatever nonsense. But those times when you really get to go out and go, you know, into the forest and go catch things, it's just, it's amazing. And when you get to do a trip like that, when you get to find something that is either new or you really wanted to see, it's amazing. And so my build-up now is I've got some invites. I met a number of folks that are in the Colombian Choco and tiny indigenous communities. And I met them at a meeting where we were all kind of talking about conservation of, you know, these forests and particularly kind of a focus on frogs. So I was invited super last minute to go. And I'm meeting these people who to me are like my heroes. They're in these communities that live like where the most toxic poison frog is. So, you know, you know, the most toxic vertebrate. And that's, that's literally what I read about in National Geographic and high school, you know, or like in like 97, there's an article. And like now I'm meeting the community members, or the, like the chief of the community who, you know, is like, hey, we really want you to come here. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like, please. You know, there's three species I'm dying to see there. One is the super toxic one. And then, you know, as Captivus was Evan's one species, I have maintained my species that I have still never seen them. Very, very few people I've ever seen um, for oh, I don't know, 15, 20 years now, and i still never seen it. And I, you know, just a couple months ago got an invite from the community which says, you know, it's safe enough and we'd like you to come and we'll, you know, assist you in all this. So hopefully the next year or so I can do a crazy little expedition at 37 years old and go find this one thing I've been wanting to see since I was a kid. We'll have to so, check in with you after that. Maybe you'll come with. Who knows? I would we'll have love a to, little yeah. baby, but we'll see if you get permission. Yeah, I know. I would. I would. I would love to. Um, when you were 
Do you still work at that? You have that friend that has the frog breeding in Iquitos? Does he still do that? Yeah, Mike Pepper's still doing it. They're closing down kind of the, you know, releasing new species and stuff, but they're still breeding quite a few things, and they still own all of that land and everything. And the so. idea behind that was when you would discover new species or new color morphs, you would give get some to him, and he would breed them, so that way there would be a population in the pet trade so that people wouldn't go and collect them in the wild. Is that how it worked? Um, effectively, Mark was finding far more than us a lot of the time because he would spend a lot of time in the field and be looking for stuff. So he has a sustainable biocommerce agency. And so effectively what they do is their permits allow them to collect a small number of adults from a population and then they bring them back to a jungle city where they have a big facility and they would breed them there, then they would export them to Canada, where he's based. Then they breed them in Canada and then sell them to the pet trade. So there's a number of generations in between, you know, the wild frogs and that. And one of the ideas is, A, it's to commercialize things, but also he would generate a lot of money that he would invest back then to buy land and to conserve things. So he'd find a lot of new things before anyone else would know about it. He'd communicate with us and my lab mates, and, you know, many times they would describe it. And, you know, he would be working then and, you know, be producing them and then eventually sell them. But what he would do, and which was super honorable and that he never would accept credit for, is many times he would go buy the land where these things were found before anyone knew they existed just to make sure that they were conserved. And then he many times hire local people that would protect the land, that would, you know, maintain the perimeters, make sure there's no squatters and anything like that. And so by doing this biocommerce, you know, People have some ethical concerns with selling wildlife and things like that. And so in this case, there were a number of generations from the wild, but he would also, you know, say six adults that he would collect from a small population, or from a population, whatever, small or large, he would never collect from a tiny population. Um, you know, a handful of adults would protect the entire forest, and then they would, you know, generate enough revenue to do a lot of this conservation work. And so even, like, recently, I, just a couple weeks ago, I had a paper published on, you know, the ethics of biocommerce. I'm talking about, you know, in which cases, you know, it really is working and what are some of the issues with it. And so his, you know, company was one of the ones that I highlighted, as well as one here from Ecuador called Wakiri in Central Ambatu to do a ton of conservation. And Tesoros de Colombia, which is another one run by a friend of mine in Bogota, outside Bogota. And that's, uh, these are, you know, we talk about orchids and poison frogs in that paper, but, um, you know, these are agencies that, you know, if there's already an interest in this pet trade and fervent demand and people spending hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars on these things, well, maybe that's an avenue that you can generate money, which also feeds back into, you know, doing conservation, which also feeds, you know, research programs. You know, in some of these areas, it's not easy to get research money. It's not easy to breed species for conservation for reintroduction. No, you know, maybe you can get a grant for one or two or three years, but in many of these times, you need to maintain these species for continuity until they can be reintroduced which can be decades and you know it's sexy to save to quote unquote save a species but that's saving a species funding lasts a few years and then after that you you know how do you keep that going and so one of the ways that folks have been doing that is with biocommerce and so yeah so that's what mark has been you know that's one of his avenues was doing a lot of you know conservation by um, also using biocommerce to generate funds that's a remarkable project, and yeah, I mean it's it's kind of similar to the whole like trophy hunting in Africa. Although this is things aren't being killed or being bred, but it's this conundrum where you know we live in a capitalist 
world, and I, I disagree with that. Um, I'm an anti-capitalist. <laughs> I wear that on my sleeve, but I'm also realistic. And in the meantime, you know, we have to. I mean, I would love to just tear the system down, um, but in the interim, you got to figure out ways to make it work for, for you and make it work for conservation. So, um, all right. Before we finish up, what do you what do you keep busy with lately? What what um, frog stuff or herb stuff are you working on now? One of our big new projects. That it's kind of silly that it's new. Um, We've been studying these glass frogs. And so glass frogs, you know, according to their name, they're highly transparent or translucent. In many species, you can see their internal organs. You know, if you catch a frog and put it on a piece of glass or just flip it upside down, you can see, you know, the heart beating. You can see the organs. And so for decades, everyone has just assumed that this is a way to avoid predation. And so it's just sometimes in science, the things that you take for granted, if you go and say, well, how do we know that? Why do we do we have evidence of that? Sometimes it just doesn't exist. And so a colleague of mine from the UK had started some of this in his PhD, and I, when I moved back down here, was trying to diversify into a couple other projects, and I was like, why isn't anyone studying this? So I reached out to anyone that I could find that had maybe been working on it, and he had like one line on his webpage about working on that so I reached out to him, and he's like, well, I have these ideas, and I have these data. Like, you know, I'd like to, you know, put this into a paper. I was like, well, if you're interested, like, you know, you're more than welcome to come down here, and, you know, I can apply for permits and let's work on this. So we've been working a lot, and our first paper is we're just waiting on final acceptance in a pretty big journal. We're really excited about it. It's just describing how transparency works and how you can avoid predation or mitigate predation risk by being, you know, translucent, allowing more light to pass through you. How does that work as a type of camouflage? And so we're working, you know, I started by jumping in on the end of his first project, and then I've started a number of projects on my own with this. And so we're really trying to trace, you know, translucency across a family of these frogs and show how this, you know, using a lot of fairly sophisticated models, we model the vision of different potential predators, and we take, you know, these intricate photos and a full spectrum so we have ultraviolet through the visible spectrum photos and we you know apply them to visual models and we're just trying to kind of dig into how this works and how common it is across the family and what are the differences in translucency and how that can really vary so we've been working on that a bunch and got a big database i've been building of that um also working you know again with poison frogs uh, one of my interests is when you have variation in something like a poison frog that you know Theory predicts that these have these warning colorations that they're toxic and they have these colorations that are easily, you know, remembered by predators. But why do you have a lot of variation in that, even within populations? And so I've been digging into that. I found some really, really weird things just uh, literally the day before quarantine. I got back from a couple of trips in the field and we just found, you know, a totally different, unexpected um, color morph in a region that we were really excited by. Um, you know, I'm always interested in the processes of speciation and this kind of throws a wrench in what all the predictions were to date for that, for the species. We also found another um, population which has kind of Justin? Justin? Yep. Oh, did you lose me? Yeah. Yep. Um, hello? Yeah, you're, 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 hello? I'm going to try reconnecting. If not, we might have to end it here.
Okay, it's oh, no. probably our internet. Now, now you're back. Okay, yeah, some, like I said, it cuts out about every, you know, X amount of time. Um, where did I cut out? Blast frogs, um, see-through for defense. It's about just okay. about less than a minute ago. Okay. Yeah, the other thing we're working on with poison frogs is really looking at, you know, why you have variation in population of something that has, you know, what we call a warning coloration. It's an aposematic coloration, which, you know, when it's tied with the defense, it should tell predators, you know, that it's not really profitable to attack them. And so when you have variation in populations, it kind of goes against, you know, the predictions of theory. But these exceptions in this theory is kind of getting more and more common, but I'm trying to look at the mechanisms and why they would be variable. You know, what is there an alternative purpose that they can serve? So I've been working on that with uh, poison frogs. And we also found, you know, we found one new really weird signal, uh, which is an ultraviolet reflectance in a white region of a frog. And so what we know of these frogs to date, none of them can see an ultraviolet. So they must, you know, if this is true, and if it holds up for this species as well as the sister species that we know it in, um, it might have been a private signal that evolved for predators. And so we're looking into this right now and writing up a publication on that. And uh, we found a new color variant, uh, which was really, really unexpected where we found it and really different. And it uh, seems to be something that's really worth poking into. Because I'm always interested in the uh, kind of the processes and mechanisms that can diverge populations to form new species. And this is a really great example, this new uh, population we found. So I'm really interested in you know, I've got a little bit of data from just the day and a half there, but I'm really keen on getting back as soon as the quarantine ends and studying that region a lot more. So, yeah, poison frogs and that. We also just uh, just yesterday, or I'm sorry, Monday, had a paper accepted. We um, recreated the evolutionary history and looked at uh, evidence of selection across the genome of coronavirus and then modeled the interactions between uh, human cells, and we found a weak point, uh, which could really help with vaccines. So I have some really, really amazing colleagues uh, that invited me to work on this project. So it was kind of a pet project. We started in January and just got it published on uh, Monday. And so we're really excited about that. Hopefully it'll do a little bit of good. Oh, and wow. uh, yeah, I'm also dabbling in some work with orchids as well and orchid evolution. And so I'm kind of, you know, whenever there's a project that's interesting and if it's something I know something about, I'm always happy to work on it. So, you know, I try to stay broad as an evolutionary biologist and not just do you know, the poison frogs, but, you know, sometimes the bread and butter and the things that I really enjoy seeing are, you know, the things you kind of focus on most. That is wonderful. Um, so we're just over, <laughs> an, we're about an hour and 15 minutes, so I think we should wrap it up, but I... Um, yeah, I don't think anyone has any interest in me for more than about three minutes, so I'd be, I, I, I'll, I'll I, be I, excited to see how you cut this down. <laughs> no, we're, I don't cut things down. I, uh, I I put the whole conversation up. Um, I like I like the... And it could just be for ease of, of oh, yeah. lack of editing, but I really like the Joe Rogan model of just to have a conversation and <laughs> put it up there, you know? Sure. Um, well, I apologize to your listenership. I hope they make it through all this. But <laughs> if anyone is ever interested in coming to Ecuador, I highly recommend it. You know, yeah, we've got yeah. a really wonderful place despite, you know, some shortcomings politically and in conservation. But if you want to throw your travel dollars in a place where conservation can work as well, you know, this is a great place. Yeah, I, I, it won me over. I, I, I would seriously consider moving there if I didn't have so much here that, you know, I, I loved it. I loved the, the people I thought were phenomenal. I, I, I've been to 51 countries now, and Ecuador is top three. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a reason I moved back here. People are always like, well, why did you move back there? Why didn't you, you know, do this for that? I was like, well, you know, you can keep fighting to get a job wherever they're offering you a job in the U.S., or you can kind of pick where you want to live and, you know, make it work. And so for me, I'm two hours away from things I study, which is just, it's never happened before. And, you know, we've got, we're really pumped about, we renovated an old house that we think is, you know, really interesting, and, you know, we have a great lifestyle here. Yeah. You know, we've been really lucky and worked our faces off, but, you know. And you have, you like, can, um... You can have the American dream in Ecuador. Yeah. That you have two, <laughs> um, um, giant terrariums. <laughs> One's, like, seven foot tall. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes mural. you can't be in the jungle, and thank God during quarantine, I've got... 1,300 gallons of, well, I guess about 1,500 gallons of plants and stuff around. So it makes it quarantine a lot easier. You can put your head in the giant terrarium filled with plants. And All right, buddy. It sounds like you're cutting out again, so I'm going to cut this now. Um, it was great talking to you. I'm sure we'll be back in touch. You too. Take care. After you go on that um, expedition um, into Columbia, let's catch up with you after that. <laughs> And uh, it was great, uh, seeing, it was great, great seeing you back in September. I hope to see you soon. Much love, buddy. Cheers. Yeah. All right, let's Good luck with the next couple months. you got some fun coming. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right, Thanks. Yeah. All right, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, uh, subscribe, uh, spread the word, rate us highly. And uh, if you have any questions or anything you want, you, know, you can tweet at us, uh, hashtag WildlifeObsNetwork. Uh, we do have a Patreon at uh, Urban Wildlife Cast, and you can email us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Thank you, everybody. Cheers. Stay safe.